welcome to In Person with Paul on Crime Time FM. I'm Paul Burke and I interview writers here about their latest novels. My guest today is Femi Coyote, author of Gaslight, the second Nigerian set thriller to feature psychologist Philip Tewo. Though smallish, Nigerian crime fiction is a growing and, in the hands of writers like Coyote, a cutting-edge art form. So Gaslight is a dive into modern Nigeria that reflects on crimes that are not only personal tragedies, but speak to the good and bad points of an extremely complex country. Rich in history, the blight of colonialism, religious and racial tensions, the legacy of civil war, and corruption, but also dynamism, culture and youth. To be able to tell something of this wider story in the context of a crime, albeit murder, and keep it exciting and in the moment, requires vision and craft. And Coyote, I'm certain, will appear in many best-of-the-year lists, including Waterstones, as it happens. Coyote is as eloquent off the page as he is on the page, so I can promise you the next 90 minutes will be entertaining, enlightening, and thought-provoking. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Femi. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good and you're good too, I hope. At a um, conference at the moment, in fact. Yes, we're in Accra. We just finished a, a literary conference that's organized by the New York University Accra campus. Right. And it was really great. Yeah, we had Wally Shoyinka here. We had Jennifer Namasunga. I think I can't pronounce the name well. But we got quite, uh, and then Aminato Fauna. And so it was actually a very, very exciting weekend that we've had here in Accra. Sounds like it. I want to start with something. Uh, I want to talk about your background a little bit. And, and I have a few questions sort of on the along those lines. But first of all, I mean, you were brought up in Lagos. That's true, isn't it? Yes. Yes, I was. Okay. Let's look at those early influences then and the writers who kind of influenced you, the writing that got you interested in the whole concept of writing. Who are we talking about? When, when, when I was growing up, my reading was very eclectic. My parents were teachers. So I actually got into writing before I started reading, mm. uh, which is not necessarily a good thing because my dad was very, very particular about my handwriting right. and, you know, sentence construction and all of those things. So I remember that in primary school, I would write like three essays a week kind of thing just to get language to, for, for me to, you know so I was really quite good at writing essays because mm -hmm. that was exactly what my dad insisted on um, that I, I learned how to do and then by the time I got to, to high school I was reading uh, a lot of James Hadley Chase you know Mills and Bone you know all those, <laughs> right. all those novels those little novels that they, you hide them from your parents because they have this provocative <laughs> covers you know but you know then you read it as a teenager and you're like but there's not that much sex in this you know kind of thing but the reality <laughs> of the matter is that the covers were very provocative and they did get us yes. uh, they didn't get us wanting to read those books then uh, and then the uh, through high school, all the way to university, I became very interested in uh, American crime fiction. You know, um, I really, really, really loved the guy called Harold Robbins in the early right. days. You know, the Carpet Baggers, uh, Stone for Danny Fisher, uh, and then I, I, my favorite author then was also a guy called Sidney Sheldon. Right. Uh, okay. 
and it's the naked face stayed with me for such a long time because I so suddenly wanted to be a psychiatrist, um, <laughs> you know, because I really, really fell in love with the characters in the naked face then. Right. And I also loved his journey to publishing because I felt it reflected my, the kind of journey. I, I could see the visuality of his storytelling, for instance, you know, how uh, the fact that he was a screenwriter, right. Also, being a, a, a Broadway um, producing plays for Broadway and things like that, or writing for Broadway, uh, really resonated with me and made me feel like, oh wow, this is a really broad writer, so to speak. He wasn't writer writer, you know. He was a he was a he was a storyteller, you know, in, in, on on all fronts. So those are the writers that really got me. And then, of course, Stephen King and all that. In terms of Nigerian writers, for some reason, I tended towards playwrights a lot more, you know, or poets a lot more mm-hmm. when, I, you know, there was not a lot of crime writing going right. on. And so most of the writing that we were exposed to in the, uh, N- Nigeria then was almost like literary works that were almost mostly textbooks too. So they, mm. it wasn't fun, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, like, you know, everybody, when I go out and everybody says, things fall apart, things fall apart. I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> sure it's a good book, but it was a textbook for me, you know, it was well. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah it's one know, of those so, essential, it's like Shakespeare. You, ha- you have to take Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. and it, it doesn't mean that Shakespeare isn't fun, but it's the way it's taught in school that doesn't give you that energy and drive behind it, the exactly. way storytelling like, sometimes yeah. does. Or, or Charles Dickens. I mean, you know, mm. I remember that in high school we had to read Great Expectations, and I hated it, absolutely hated it, until I grew older. And one day I just picked it up. You know, I, I think I was even in my early forties when I picked it up, and I was like, right. "This is not bad at all. This is actually a very, very powerful, complex class story that is told very simply, and mm. the insights into." psychopathology, you know, and the process of grieving and, and, and all of that is so profound for that time, but which I never noticed when I was in high school and I was right. required to read this book, you know. So those are my influences in the early days. And I think that um, I, like I said, I did enjoy reading plays. And my favorite playwright was Olaru Timi. He's late now mm-hmm. and he wrote some beautiful, beautiful plays that, Still stay with me till today in terms of storytelling, and uh, yeah, the, very that's very eclectic. But I get the sense of um, the fact that storytelling was important. I've heard you mention novels like Shogun before now, and and Lace as well. But the whole thing is, it's all about storytelling. But the thing that backs up storytelling is character, yes, and getting into those characters. And do you think that there's that? What is it about fiction? I suppose, in just in a general sense, that that makes that important. That connects us, I suppose. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know how to to explain it beyond the fact that you know character is an essential part of storytelling, and we like listening to stories because uh, it reflects us. You know, it's 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 either we identify with or we don't identify with. Mm. You know, um, it's hard to identify with a tree. It's hard <laughs> to identify with you know a swimming pool, you know, mm. <laughs> kind of thing. Um, I'm, I'm, I think because char- characters is, is animation, isn't it? You know, you, you, we don't identify with still things. We don't identify with things that are static. 
um, so to speak. We we identify with things that that are dynamic, that live, breathe. Uh, um, yeah, I, I think that is why character is so, so important in storytelling. And character says that we're also bearing witness, you know, to an experience that we might never actually experience yes, right. ourselves, but we're, we're bearing witness, you know. So it, it's so that I vicarious think, experience of something. Yeah. Yes, and I suppose and that's I, where crime fiction is important, maybe, too, because crime fiction deals with those extremes, doesn't it? We see people at those most difficult moments in their lives and that's the character you draw absolutely and i think nowadays more and more you know crime fiction is moving from that you know um uh blonde girl you know right splashed, you know yeah. or killed kind of thing and it's victims themselves are actually taking on a life of their own so that we can identify with them and i'm very excited about that because it's there's less and less emphasis on the perpetrator or the person yes. that commits the crime, and there's a lot more in terms of you know how the the the, the victim who is a character and is a valid character and has a valid story to tell, uh, and the impact on either the community or either the family and things like that. Those are taking more and more a bigger chunk of crime writing nowadays and i think that that is a very very positive thing because i truly believe in the ability of crime crime stories to to effect change to, to cause right. some kind of reflection um because it's it's and, and to almost like to affect systems rather than you know just one person and things like that you know so i i, I really am very excited about the trend that is happening across the world nowadays in crime writing in terms of broadening the scope and making more characters inhabit that story mm. beyond the victim and the perpetrator. No, I totally agree with you. That for me is what makes crime fiction so exciting in the, in the world. I want to go back just a little bit because I want to talk about your academic path a little Ooh. bit, a little bit of background for people. I mean, <laughs> I went to college, but boy, your background is complex. We've got University of Southern California. We've got Washington, Stellenbosch. We've got film. We've got clinical psychology. Try and give us a little flavor of that, please, Femi. Uh, no, it, it, I think it's, first of all, I, 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 I get asked that a lot. And now I'm getting a bit embarrassed about it uh, because I, I was just leaving. First of all, I like school. Right. You know, it's okay. weird like that, but I do like <laughs> school. Your parents got I, that into you early. I think so. And I really think so. But I, I also, now that I've grown older, I think it was my way of almost like controlling my world and controlling my knowledge acquisition. Um, I like the accountability of school. I like the, I like the, I would like, I also like the security of school. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the school, all of the schools you just mentioned, they happen pre free online, you know, right. kind of thing. So I had to go on campus, right? Mm -hmm. And I realized that I actually like the, the safety and the, the safety of knowledge sharing and acquisition that happens right. on campus, you know. Um, I'm at my best, or I'm on my best behavior. I'm very disciplined, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and all that, you know. Um, I, I submit my assignments on time. I submit my, you know, so I really like school. Um, I wish I could pass that on to my kids. 
<laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, and, and before before um, clinical psychology, which I did as a postgraduate, mm-hmm. I, I actually studied animal science, you right. know, for my first degree, and that was because I wanted to. Uh, study medicine and then be a psychiatrist, like I told you earlier, because of Sidney Sheldon's uh, mm-hmm. book, The Naked Face, um, and found out that I, I I fell short of the grades of, of the scores for for medicine. So the plan was actually to study animal science and then transfer to medicine or do it as a pre med and and all that. Mm-hmm. Only for me to finish, you know. And there were so many strikes and stuff in Nigeria then that uh, I then decided, okay, look, let me just do clinical psychology. Um, and I got my parents' permission to do uh, clinical so go back to school. Then I went back and studied clinical psychology. And then I finished clinical psychology. I realized that, no, I don't want to be a clinician. <laughs> I wasn't interested. You know, all through this time, I've always been writing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I've always been writing. I wrote plays all through my university days, and all of them were performed to a lot of critical acclaim. Mm-hmm. So I never... I never felt as if I was wasting my time going to school because I was always writing and I was enjoying writing. So I I think by the time I got to other courses, other scholarships and things like that, it became almost like I was I was getting knowledge yeah. so that I could apply yeah. to my writing. You see, this is way. why this this is why I brought it up. I didn't bring it up to embarrass you about your qualifications, <laughs> which are substantial, by the way. No, my no, friends, was, my friends <laughs> call me a professional student. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's nothing in isolation, mm. and writers need to bring an experience to writing a novel, especially the kind of writing you do. And we're going to talk about that as we go along. And of course, your background is important to that, and that's why I wanted to to kind of bring that in. No, I understand. I understand. And it's it's very important, but it took me a long time also to make peace with that. Right. Because I didn't know why I was almost like a academic butterfly kind mm. of thing, you know, jumping from one thing to the, the, the to the other. But nowadays I am so grateful for it because it just I feel so much more harmonized inside myself, you know. And I'm very and I'm also extremely comfortable with things that I don't know anything about and I don't mm. want to know anything about you know i don't want to know anything about astrophysics you know i'm not interested in going to the moon and understanding how you know the, the, the rocket goes up and all that right and i just switch off you know but things that are exciting to me i find are things that i've sort of like been exposed to in the academia you know war you know mm. strife conflicts you know uh what's going on in israel and pac uh, uh, and palestine right now right Ex- yes. it, it interests me a lot more because of the characters the 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 political historical issues that brought us to where we are right now with that in in that matter you know but i, I don't think i would be that interested in it if i did if i wasn't if i wasn't a student of human nature you know <laughs> you know it's almost in a sense as if in the background without you realizing it you were collecting all this stuff and it you know you didn't necessarily know exactly where it was going but you are going to get to a point where we now have got to of course i think so i i really i totally agree with you uh and like i said then when when you asked the question i said i didn't know i was going to school i thought i was leaving mm, right. <laughs> you know I, I, it was just how i lived my life you know how i write my books even even when I started writing novels, I I would I would even for my MA, I, my first book was written while I was doing my MA, 
and the second one was written while I'm doing my PhD. Yes, <laughs> you know, right. so it 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 it, it confines me. It gives me context. It gives me discipline. It gives me. It allows me to be able to because I've always had a day job. You know, right? So it yes, allows me to sort of like put my my mind in in sections. This is school, and this is work, and this is. Um, fatherhood, or this is husbandhood, right. or this is you know, and all that. Yeah, I'm totally useless at housework, though. That's a that <laughs> frustration of my wife. You know, I can't change a bulb. You know, like the bulb would go off in the bathroom, and you know, my wife and I would be looking at each other, and then she'd be like, "Well, it's nice. No, I'm not going to do it." You know, I would, I would, I would literally go into that bathroom every day for a whole year, shave in the dark. <laughs> yeah it's nice to know you have feet of clay anyway let's talk a, a little bit about your playwriting then and mm-hmm. um how that developed into television work and film and so on tell us a little bit about that please yeah i it, it was it's i actually started so i got into university i think i think i was actually because i didn't make it into for medicine i did feel a right. bit like a failure you know it's a long story about that so all of my you put that in the book like, don't you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that, you know. But uh, all of my classmates, the ones that we went to school together, because I went to a, a very, as of that time, a quite an exclusive military school, uh, uh, and everybody, like literally everybody, got into university before me uh, because I didn't. My my results did not come on time, and then when it finally came, it wasn't enough to get into medicine. Um, so by the time I got into university, I was a bit traumatized. Um, so I would sort of stay on my own a lot, and then I would go watch plays because my my residential quarters was right in front of the theater, you know. So I'll go watch plays and sort of watch it, and then I watched this particularly interesting one. Now looking back, I realized that it was actually Kafka, uh, Kafka's Metamorphosis, I think. Oh yeah. So it was right. an absurdist play, you know. But I remember coming out of that play very very annoyed you know my hard-earned students money spent to ticket a play that didn't make any sense to me at right, that point right. so i was quite vocal about it outside and then the director walked over to me and said something like um can you do better i'm like anyone can do better than that <laughs> you know and he said, come, for, come for an audition tomorrow and then i went for an audition and i got the play i got the part rather and that was how i got into theater and then I was going to, I mean, I acted in so many plays in my early, uh, uh, my first two, three years in the university. And then I felt, mm, I think I can try my hand at playwriting here. And then I wrote the play and I gave it to my fellow actors and mm-hmm. they were like, oh, this is really good. This is really good. And I continued. And so from that point on, I think I wrote, I was writing, I, I, I promised myself to write a play every year and produce a play every year. You know, and I did that for five years continuously, and I never set foot on stage anymore <laughs> because I really enjoyed writing. Right. Uh, then when pe- when people ask me why did you stop uh, acting, and I'm like, no, because I sort of liked playing God, and I felt that <laughs> <laughs> you know, being a, a writer director was more my thing, uh, mm. and uh, I didn't like taking directions. <laughs> That's interesting because obviously the thing about a novel as well, I mean, if you write a screenplay for somebody else, it's part of a process which involves an awful lot of people. Of yes. course, it's different when you write a novel, isn't it? 
Yes, totally different. And I think that's what attracted me to writing a novel. Uh, right. I actually never saw myself writing a novel for a very long time because I really enjoyed the stage and screenwriting. And in fact, mm-hmm. my first screenplay was an adaptation of a stage play that I put into a, a screenwriting competition. Mm-hmm. And when I won it, um, I won that. Uh, I won it. And then we went for a workshop and that was how I got a job. And I should have told you that earlier. That was how I got a job in advertising because I went for right, this okay. workshop and yes. there was this guy there that said, I think you make a good copywriter. I'm like, hmm, what's that? Mm. What's a copywriter? And he said, no, 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 come to our agency and we'll give you a copy test. And then I went there, you know, I did the copy test. They said, oh, this is pretty cool. What's your background? And I said, animal science and clinical psychology. I said, damn, that's what we want. I'm like, you want somebody... <laughs> You know, and then they said, oh, apparently they were starting a healthcare department, uh, a healthcare communication department, and they wanted somebody that had a science background that could write. And that's that was literally the first time I started seeing the impact of every knowledge that you have Mm. on your career. You know, Mm. what are the chances that these people would be looking for someone that had the kind of background that I had? You know, so so it's it, yeah. So that's has always been something that always been almost like it inspired me to want to learn more in, in the things that I'm interested in because I know it will come in handy. I know someone somewhere needs it, you know, and is willing to pay for it. Very important mm. too, you know. Um. So yeah, the, so the the writing, the screenwriting just happened organically from the playwriting, you know, whereby I, I was able to then see, oh, wow, I really love doing this, you know. Um, so the, the, by the time the novel writing started, it was an existential crisis, actually. You know, I, had, I was now in my mid-40s. I was mm-hmm. written so many uh, plays. I've written so many uh, radio plays and, you know, uh, uh, TV, movies. And I said to myself, there's nothing of me you know, there's something, right. there's nothing of me, you know, there was nothing um, I could put a stamp on and say, yeah, this is me. Uh, this was uh, that I had creative control from the beginning to the end. And I realized that the only thing that could give me that was, was, um, was uh, novel. writing a novel. Mm. And so that's why I call it an existential crisis that led me to that. You know, I was suddenly faced with the fear of my immortality, of, of my mortality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a very different experience entirely and quite rewarding, exhausting, but rewarding. Yeah, no, I'm sure both. Yes. What about then when you went to the University of East Anglia to do the creative writing MA? What, how was the, what stage was the novel at at that point? Because as you point out, this is all about that first work, which became The Light Seekers. Uh, sorry, The Light Seekers. I hadn't written a word. Oh, right. OK. No, right. I hadn't written a word. I told myself I wanted to write a novel. Mm-hmm. And um, and th- this program came up. I actually applied for the inaugural uh, class when it was launched, and somehow, apparently, my app- they sent out a, a, a request a request for a, an interview, and it sort of went into my junk, and I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so that was how I missed it that year. And then, um, so I hadn't written anything. I actually started writing like six right. In the university, yeah, on the program. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, my, just an assumption. It shows you you should make assumptions. But I kind of thought that you'd had a novel there. So how did that develop then within the context of the MA? Oh, uh, yeah, within the context of the MA, I mean, 
the, the novel is supposed to be the the thesis, you know, <laughs> yes, and, right. and that's why we went to school to to learn how to write this thesis. Apparently, um, again, I didn't go because I wanted to learn how to write. I went because I really, genuinely wanted the community of writers, okay, um, the community right. of, of yeah. Uh, I felt safe there. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But the the idea was basically that by the I think by the second semester you're supposed to presents your sort of like your proposal or your for the first chapter of your novel mm-hmm. and by that time you would have gone through some of the genres that exist or the subgenres that exist in the crime fiction space whereby you can then say okay this is the type of novel i want to write you know some people would choose domestic noir some people would choose you know the satire or social mm-hmm. satire kind of things um and i know that i wanted to write a non-fiction novel uh, because I was so enamored by um, in cold blood, in cold blood, by Truman, the Truman Capote. By Truman Capote. Right. Yeah, uh, it was one of the texts that we had to study, and I thought this is very fascinating. I, was, mm. I also liked the the brevity of it. <laughs> I thought <laughs> it was actually such a dense story, very complex story that is. That is so small, you know. It is, and yeah, and I know every word was, yeah, every word was so carefully chosen mm. that I was, I was overwhelmed, and I thought, no, if I could do this, if I really could do this, I, if I could get away with it. And so, at that particular point in time, I, I was thinking of writing a non-fiction novel about these four boys that were lynched in a Nigerian university town, right? Um, because I felt it was something that needed. It was a story that needed to be told. You know, um, Mm -hmm. it disturbed me, it fascinated me, it repulsed me, and it shocked the whole world. And Mm. yet, somehow, it's like, it's being forgotten. You know, nobody's asking those critical questions. And so, when I read how Capote went around, you know, wrote the uh, Ruth in Cold Blood, I thought this was a methodology, a writing methodology Mm. that I could apply to, to the story until I sort of like presented that idea to my supervisors and my, you know, my directors of studies. And they're like, you know, how long that's going to take you to do? I mean, <laughs> do, you want to, do you want to be here for a very long time? You know, um, I, I also had to get, for instance, to do something that I had to get permission, approvals from the university and all of that. Right. So that was when I decided that, okay, why don't I just, fictionalize it you know why don't i imagine what could have happened mm. and that was the beginning of light seekers you know just saying what could have happened and mm. the extent to which i could deviate from um from real life mm. and i found that, that but i still like carry it. The, the emotional truth that, yes, that the emotion. backs up why something like that would happen as you said yes, the lynching I, of four young men yes. Yes, and I, I really found out that, um, you know, I enjoyed it. I actually enjoy mm. uh, it's something I can, I, the only way I can put it, I enjoyed the freedom to lie. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, I enjoyed the freedom to create something that was not there. Um, I enjoyed being able to not to be fixated on. I think on, then it becomes your story, very much your story, and it has your style which is also true. So it becomes a very different novel to the kind of novel that In Cold Blood is. But I'm fascinated by something you said. I think this is very true. When something's in the news, 
sometimes it can appear very important or it is very important and in this case very shocking but then mm. at the same time when it leaves the news it vanishes and you said about how important fiction can be and the point about it is your novel's there now forever and so people can see this 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road and it so it has an inf- uh, an impact doesn't it it does it does and uh, i never actually thought about it the way you put it but it's so important and i'm wondering whether that is really why i'm so passionate about telling stories in the now mm. um i'm really really contemporary issues of now right uh, because those are the issues that need to be changed now Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I I suspect that maybe in the next ten years or twenty years, some young writer is going to hear the stories of these four university undergraduates that were lynched and go, "Oh, that's a very nice story. I'm going to research yes, it right. and I'm going to write it." But it's mm. gone. It's done. Mm. You know, it's, it's it's now historical fiction. Yeah, you're you explaining know? something to do with that moment in the past, exactly. not how we are now. Yeah, now you know, mm. and I think that is the responsibility that. I think a lot of crime writers are rising up to now bearing witness to the times so that mm. we can re re envision you know the future in, in, in a different way and it's becoming more and more particularly resonating with African writers you know in the in the area of decolonization of literature and all of those mm-hmm. kind of things but the reality the reality of the matter is that we are we are stepping up to the plate and bearing witness to our times because so much needs to change you know so much needs to evolve mm. and yeah yeah and that's holding mirror to the society as it is right. is so important okay okay let's talk about that because I, for me i see it, it it's a it's an easy way of defining it it's not it doesn't split up like this but you've got the micro mm. which is that personal story about these four young men which needs personal explanations about how people got involved in the crime and what actually happened. But in the background all the time is an exploration of Nigeria, modern Nigeria. And you look at the religion and the politics, the culture, the populism, uh, mm. corruption, all those in the, um, issues that underpin the narrative. So you are trying to, and I think you've already alluded to this, tell Nigeria's story at the same time, aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people ask me, oh, yeah, but how did you, for instance, the, 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 the villain, the, mm-hmm. the, the villain, uh, they're like, oh, no, but he's, so, he's such a, we, we can't really get into him. We don't really know him. He's just a very, right. you know, uh, almost um, one-dimensional character. Yeah, he's, he's like the girl who gets killed, the blonde girl at the start. He's kind of a, a MacGuffin almost in a story. Yes, mm. but one of the things that I... I that that character took the most thought mm. to create because he is very much Nigeria to me. You know, he has a split personality, right. for instance. Um, the influence of the church on his life, for instance. Um, the so he he's post-colonial Nigeria in a sense. And what I was trying to do is how, to, to point out is how the system feeds on his young. You know, mm-hmm. just feeds on his young. You know what could what could exist in an environment and in a community that makes it okay to to kill four yes. young men. You know what? Yeah. What there must be something in the system that is it in the water. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. that, that you drink. Yeah, because if you took all these people individually and you sat them down in a room, they wouldn't come to the conclusion that burning four black guys was a good idea. 
I think but somehow you know, collectively. Co- collectively, you know. Mm. So I think to a very large extent, um, th- that is the story of Nigeria, you know. So if you actually study um, uh, Paul's journey, I'm not going to say his other name for the people that haven't read it. Right, but yes. If you follow John Paul's journey, you actually see the history of Nigeria, you know, mm. you know, his experiences and the journey and how he got to be where he is, you know, the corruption of the mind and all that. So what I find fascinating is that a lot of what I would say foreign readers go and say, mm, this is a very funny uh, uh, villain, you know, uh, seems a bit of a caricature kind of thing. But every Nigerian that has read it gets it, you know, mm. <laughs> they get it. They can get the historical context, you know, you can get, you know, the age, even the age, up to the age that the guy is, you know, in the story, shows you that this guy, that I patterned it against the, the pre-colonial to colonial Nigeria. Yes, right. Uh, coming there, you know, the fragmented personality, the schizophrenia, all of those kinds of things is there. And then when you now talk about all the other issues that I've tried to bring up, I'm a very firm believer in the idea of systems thinking. You know, mm-hmm. uh, again, it's all part of, or going to school and maybe learning too much. My editor tells me one day, he says, your problem is that you're too smart for your own. <laughs> I'm but like, so I'm not so sure in a, in a sense, though, we, we, we think about psychologies in relation to people, but societies have their own psyche and their own psychopath- psychopathy, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a firm believer in that. Uh, in fact, individuals don't excite me as much as people in mm-hmm. groups, you know, uh, because. When you see an individual, it's sort of like one-on-one and you study an individual, it's sort of one-on-one and you sort of like get what you get, what is given, you know, um, you, you relate to the energy or you relate to their needs or their wants and the conversation that's going on at that. Mm-hmm. But when you really want to get to know people, see how they behave in crowds, you know, see how they, when yes, they right. feel they are not being watched, you know, mm. <laughs> kind of thing, you know. And you, you know, just sit down in church, for instance, and, and you know, like literally watch your mom, mm. and so see how she behaves, and you realize that you no, know, this is you know, this, this is a different mask that we wear, yeah. you know, when we are with other people, you know, and how and how we want those other people to see us mm. tells us a lot about our personality, about our insecurities, and things like that. So if you if you're a very good people watcher. There's a lot you can get from watching people in restaurants, for instance, mm. or watching people in church, watching people at the stadium, you know, watching people at the nightclub, you know. And then when you actually isolate this person and you take them to coffee one-on-one or you take mm-hmm. them, you, you know, you go to their houses and you're having a conversation on a sofa one-on-one, it's a very different person. <laughs> yeah. So I've never been able to know which one is the real one, but I try to, think that people in crowds who don't know they're being watched tell me a lot more yeah do they stand up don't they stand up how do they behave around other people when things start yeah yeah Uh, do do they go with the crowd do they go Mm. with the flu or do they make a point of not going with the flow Mm. (laughs) you know um do they, do, they, do they make a very loud, conscious effort to say, I'm coming with you, I'm coming with you, you know, or did they quietly follow? There are just so many things that come out in the dynamics of people mm. in groups as against people individually. So when it comes to research, 
it's it's an it's almost for you an absorbed research because you're watching people. It's not like it's not so important sitting down and studying a book and it says this happened then and that happened then and this is a history or whatever. It is more about because what we talk about in the now is how people carry those things and they don't carry history or uh, culture and things that have happened intellectually. They carry them emotionally. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm really so really you you get me so much you know I'm I'm not even interested in the facts of the matter mm. you know it's the way you feel about it you know that is the it's your fact you know so a child of war the war is a fact mm. you know but some survive it and some don't why <laughs> you know what exactly allowed people uh, some people to survive the trauma of war and other people to 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 Thrive on yes, the, right. on the yeah. of war, you know, uh, and and that's really for me where the the interesting dynamics of human beings and their environment, you know, what it means that that nature nurture thing mm. how it interacts with each other. And like I said, I really I'm a, I'm a big fan of of a um, big I'm a, I'm a student of systems thinking, you know, and I've started trying to apply it to my life, even how I think. And process and not look at things in isolation. Mm. So for me, there's a when you talked about all the other things in the macro, there's corruption, yes, but Nigeria is not defined by corruption. The mm. Nigeria of today yes. is not defined by corruption. Then there is a there's police brutality, but Nigeria is not defined by police brutality. No. Uh, so you call all of those things altogether. No, that's they, the stereotype, often a Western stereotype, of course about Nigeria stands for certain things, so it can only be those certain things. And that's a nonsense. Of course it is. It, it, it is nonsense. But what is also scary is the extent to which we also buy into those stereotypes. Right, okay. Then it becomes almost this self-fulfilling prophecy. And say, oh, mm. no, Nigeria is a very corrupt country. Nigeria is very, oh, I'm so scared to go to Nigeria because Nigeria is a very corrupt country. And then everybody goes, yeah, 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 that's so sad. Yeah, but, you know, it's a right. corrupt country. But I feel like... But that's not what defines us, you know. With their medical doctors, their their lawyers, they're really really smart people. That um, um, they're really really smart people that uh, that that live in that country. That are Nigerians, and so there's there's a lot more that defines us. Um, yeah, I don't know how to explain it, but I I love to meet. And I know what you mean, but and it is about meeting those two things that that group mentality or those ideas that come from the macro. And still understanding the micro, which is as individuals, Nigerians are sometimes hard workers, sometimes business people, sometimes nice people, sometimes bad people, you know, just individuals. And that collectively turns into something. I think it's a good time, actually. Uh, tell us a little bit about Gaslight. Introduce the second novel, please. Oh, yeah, Gaslight. Um, uh, Gaslight is a very, it's a story that I've always wanted to tell uh, because it's the story of for me, the journey of faith, you know, um, my investigator or my protagonist, Philip Taiwo, was called in to investigate the disappearance of um, of the wife of the of the pastor of a very big church in Nigeria, and um, he does not know know why. You know, they're calling him in, but it was clear that the, the congregation or the church elders are bringing him in to give the impression that they are doing something to take face. Um, the, um, the wife of the pastor cannot be found. 
um, they say that she goes on a retreat and nobody can tell us where she is. And the, the pastor is convinced that his wife is going to appear uh, and everything will be fine. You know, except that things did not go according to plan. No, and right. we <laughs> and then we started discovering that there's a lot more that meet than meets the eye. And just as the police released the the pastor, um, because they could not find evidence that he, he had committed any crime, um, mm-hmm. the body of pastor's wife uh, is found and it suddenly became a murder investigation. And that is what drives the story, trying to find out what really happened, uh, why it happened, and uh, why is anybody trying to frame the pastor for the death of a wife that was not dead as of the time he was arrested. <laughs> right. It's It starts very differently from the other novel, um, which starts very brutally and violently. But this one builds towards that. Um, so we, we find out that this story that starts and appears to be quite simple has these deeper ramifications again. And it, it clearly gets back to this point you were saying about groups and mentalities. So just looking at that to start with, the focus of the novel is religion, this time, and corruption. So it's again, it's looking at Nigeria from specific aspects of, of society. And we sort of see that even good intentions can lead to bad results. And, you know, it's, it's not necessarily about all bad intentions. But I suppose I'm wondering about how you see religion as that kind of crowd mentality. We talked about the brutality of the crowd that, that, you know, lynched the young men. It's not the same thing. But you are exploring that crowd mentality within a religious context, aren't you? Absolutely. And again, it, it, it's so important. So for, um, for light seekers, I was exploring the, the weaponization of groups. Mm-hmm. Um, in Gaslight, I was exploring the weaponization of corruption. Right. You know, um, really, how do we, how is corruption, corruption can we, can we weaponize, you know, because for all we, and you can see it as to how the, 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 the victim used the environment to her, for her purpose. Right. To achieve her aim. Uh, she didn't use the good-naturedness of people around her, she banked on the bad naturedness yes, right. Right. <laughs> of, of the people around her to get it done. And I thought it's a very, very interesting concept, you know, the, the, just to understand that there is nothing that we do as human beings, as a group or order that does not have consequence, you know, no good deed goes <laughs> unpunished and right. everything can be used. Everything can be weaponized. And so we sometimes need to be careful, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of how, you know, because if we look at corruption in its isolation, we tend to lose the the gist of it. It does a lot yeah. more. It's the corruption of the soul. You know, uh, we we think corruption is just about collecting a bribe, or mm. corruption is about collecting a kickback, or you know, hiding the truth. It's beyond. It goes beyond that because you know, as those are physical manifestation of the state of the mind. Right. You know, those are physical manifestations of the poverty of the spirit. You know, for you to need that 10 pounds, you know, for a police officer to pocket (laughs) 10 pounds um, so they can turn his eye away from a crime that is being committed. That's the beginning of the end, but it Mm. comes from somewhere. I'm not sure the person, when they did their training to join the police force, even in the UK, 
um, I'm not sure that the person started out by saying, oh, my life is going to be changed now because I'm going to be getting 10, 10 pound bribe no, every right. day. <laughs> you understand? Yeah. They would yeah. laugh at that if you said that at that time, yes. Exactly. But then what happened? It must have, first mm. of all, happened internally. Something happened to you yes. internally. You experienced something internally. So for me, I think that was what I was trying to explore in, in this time. Of, you know, was it the group? You know, uh, in terms mm. of religion, this time using religion as what the religion should be the purest of pursuits. <laughs> you know, the most um, yes, right. But it's based on belief. You know, it's based on faith. You know, uh, and how is it that religion suddenly has become this dirty word? You know, what led to it? You know, um, See, and why had the church? Yeah, gone. Well, no, I was going to say, see, I think this is where you're getting into something that's incredibly um, interesting, much more interesting than the idea of you offer me a bribe, I take a bribe for a specific mm -hmm. offense, whatever it is. It's about how individuals join institutions and then somehow become corrupted within the context of the institution so that the institution has values or things to protect. And you know better than that when you start out. You know you shouldn't be protecting a corruption, say, within the church. But somehow you wind up needing to protect that. That's the more interesting kind of corruption that people get involved in. Exactly. And for me, I, again, another thing about religion, which uh, two things really interested me about religion. Um, one is the extent to which the church has abdicated its responsibility to nurture faith, you know, just to nurture faith, to, mm. to give hope. Um, I think it's something I find very fascinating in how we're so the church and even including the the the, the Islamic faith, um, how we we've abdicated that responsibility to take care of the society, to mm. take care of it. You know, we spend so much time otherizing and demoralizing other people, but both faiths and most faiths in the world. Actually, I, I advocate love. You yeah, know, in their purest very, sense, absolutely. In the purest sense. So that's number one, uh, uh, and and because of that, it it leads to. It, it makes me feel sad when you see people who have lost their faith. Mm. You know, it's so sad. There is nothing more sad than you know, some of the most exciting and brilliant people I've met in my life are atheists, and they're happy, and I love them. Mm. There's nothing sadder than somebody that had faith in a religious, in the, in the religious sense, and lost it. Right. The, you know, they are because cynical. their hole is reduced by yeah, mm. yeah. They're cynical. They're bitter. They're mm. you know, almost like angry. You know that something beautiful has been reaped out of them. You know, um, and then the second part of it is the second thing that always fascinated me about the story is the fact that. Every time when we want to say something that justifies our horrible attitude towards society, towards otherizing others, towards what you call sin, most of the time, at least in Christendom, we quote everything but Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. We know, the, the, the whole idea of what would Jesus do or what would Jesus say yes, does right. not become into, you know, we will quote Ezekiah, we will quote Jeremiah, we will quote, you know, Paul or whatever. 
except the one person that we claim to be following, who is mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. You know, so I was always fascinated as to how what would happen if the church had no other book to reference but the but the words and the but the words of Jesus, so mm-hmm. to speak. You know, and. Yeah, so those were the two things I wanted to just oppose against each other and try to see if I throw it into a, a bunch of characters, how would they react, you know? Uh, people that are pious, for instance, and people that are, you know, um, not so pious, and people that are just human. And I really wanted to put them in that mix and say, okay, there's a crime here, and how would they all react to it? And also in the process, I also wanted to, use my main character, who is Philip Taiwo, to go through his own journey of faith and his own journey uh, yes. of, you know, finding himself, you know, as, as a father um, uh, and using that as... as uh, I want him to use every case that he investigates to grow as a person, not to solve just the case kind of thing. Right. So, yeah. And that, and I want to talk about that, actually, that'll go... It goes both ways. It goes into his personal life as a growth and development thing, but also what happens in his life reflects on society too. So it's always this constant two-way process. Just one thing before we move on to that, though, you mentioned, um, well, what happens is at the start of each section of the book, you have a quote, a law of physics, and you have a quote from a religious source. Mm. And I'm curious about that. Is that comp- uh, comparison and contrasting? Uh, but they both seem to illuminate human nature, I suppose. Exactly. I, I, and that's it. So the story is called Gaslight, um, for mm-hmm. obvious reasons, Gaslight, yeah. because I wanted the audience to also wonder, you know, is he gaslighting me? You know, that's really happened. Didn't that really happen kind of thing? So there's gaslight happening in, in terms of the experience of the reader themselves, but it's also gaslight happening in, in the, in, within the environment and, the, uh, you know, the, the church. I, I feel that a lot of people are being gaslit in the church, mm-hmm. you know, um, so that that's that. But what I when I started looking at the laws of physics, the laws of gas, so to speak, they are very very similar to how what you can say the Bible sees life. You know, yes. the ephemeral nature of life in itself. You know, and I thought it was very fascinating when I started doing my research into the the the, the, the three laws of gas: mm. Avogadro's law, Charles' law. And um, I don't know, I can't remember the Boyle? third one right now. But Boyle's Boyle. Law. Yeah. And I was able to also find biblical passages that sort of balance those two observations. You know, the, the laws of gas and this, what the Bible says about light, for instance, light as knowledge or mm-hmm. light as, as illumination, so to speak. I'm bringing that together. I thought it was a very, very... Um, ingenious way to to let the to 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 bring the reader into the space of that section to understand yeah, that so. in this but yeah in this particular section we're talking about you know things are a mess you know uh, mm. you can't see the trees for the forest and then you get to another one that's talking about okay now things are getting a bit more straightforward now <laughs> you know mm. and all that so yeah i think it was it was a device, and I, I, I'm always grateful to my editors for not asking me to take it out, you know, because in fact they bought into it to the point whereby my editor would send me possible Bible quotes that were much more relevant <laughs> than the one I did. 
<laughs> no, honestly, I, I think it works perfectly. So I'm glad they, they allowed that anyway. So let's talk about Philip. I mean, is he the light bringer in a sense? You meant the light uh, is in both titles. It's not irrelevant that it's in both titles, obviously. Um, he's a kind of, I mean, he's a psychologist. So that's important because he's not kind of tainted by being a policeman or prejudiced by being a policeman. Um, and so, and also he can ask that big question, the question you care about more than anything, why rather than what or how or who? Yeah, exactly. The question, that's the question I care about. Uh, like I said, I do truly believe that, you know, when you catch the perpetrator, then what, you know, mm. um, when we know what's happened, then what, you know, uh, but when we start exploring the why, you know, something happened, then we start putting in the, the, the fundamentals of systemic change. You know, um, if, if I understand that um, women cannot work in the night on their own because they are afraid, then I might be able to, and I ask why, then I might be able to understand that I need to put street lights, mm. <laughs> you know, but if I spend all my resources trying to find that one person that um, that assaulted uh, um, a yes, lady walking there, you mm. know, you you it's it you, you're losing the point because then another mm. woman will be assaulted, then another woman will be assaulted, another woman, then the cycle goes on. Mm. But it can be fixed with just street lights. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, it can literally be fixed. You just put street lights there, yeah. put a camera there. You know, and Maybe that will stop the, the the perpetrators from when they know that the camera is watching them. You know, they at least that the incidents would reduce systematically enough, and then we will spend less money on crime crime fighting, uh, a bit more on crime prevention. You mm. know, so that, that's 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 uh, my issue there. So Philip is um, really believes this. He, he, this is his religion, so to speak. You know. Uh, I, I think of him as the kind of person that I always tell my editor, and we agree very much on it. He's not a superhero. Uh, he doesn't have a special gift. He he just works hard. He you does know? work hard. Uh, he, he works hard. Um, and it's not just because of the money or because it's his job, and he takes his job very seriously. Um, I I feel that he's also the kind of person that because he... he He's a reluctant returnee to Nigeria. Um, mm. He's lived about 20 years in the U.S. And then he comes, he came to Nigeria to work um, um, because his wife is on sabbatical. Yes, of course. This is very important. Sorry, carry on. And so some of his conflicts, um, when we start, um, when we go through the story uh, and all that. So I don't know what I can say more about him, but I just find him a very fascinating character to to use as my um as my he's, our, he's our way into the story isn't he he's yes yeah. yes you know um, did, did you envisage that as a series then did you think that philip would always be because you you i'm assuming now that what you're doing is you're exploring these different aspects of nigerian society it becomes a whole as you go through a series of books and philip was always going to be the way through that is that true Absolutely. <laughs> I always I always planned it as a series. Uh, and I must tell you this, it, it, while I was doing my MA, I was very intentional. Like I said, I didn't, you know, I may, I may, I've been lucky 
Uh, I've been very blessed. The kind of success that I've been able to record in terms of my my writing, uh, mm-hmm. especially with Light Seekers, I've been so, so blessed. But I was also pretty intentional about what I wanted to do right. and what I wanted to get out of the MA, you know. So there was literally nothing I did without careful deliberation and consultation. You know, so I knew it was going to be it was going to be a series. I wanted to create a character that um, that is the antithesis of Heko Poirot, for instance, or um, or is the opposite of. He's know, not Jack a Sherlock Hitler. Holmes. Or... Yeah, it's not Sherlock Holmes kind of thing. I wanted a, a, a truly authentic Nigerian character that would can be able to go through the strata. The, the socioeconomic strata of the country and be able to be distant enough to ask questions, you yes, know, right. almost like naive enough to say, mm. how, how how did this happen? How did we get here? Kind of thing, you know, the things that people have taken for granted, even as Nigerians themselves, you know, to see that pothole or to not even consider or think about the process of giving a, a, a law enforcement officer a bribe without processing it, you know, he would process it. That does not, that's not necessarily stopping him from giving the bribe, but mm-hmm. he would process it and say, why? why? Why is this commonplace and all that? And I love that about him because he allows me to really probe, you know, it really allows me to probe some phenomenon that everybody has started to take for granted. Yeah, I think one of the really fascinating things about him as well is he has his own preconceived notions when he starts things. But as you said, he goes on a journey and he has to learn and he has to develop as he goes along. He's a good father. He's a very good father, I think. Um, And that's really important because, as I said, it isn't just that this family isn't there. His family isn't there just to round him out as a character, which might be in some novels. It is a reflection back on the wider society and on the issues that crop up in the novel. They crop up for the family, too. So, for instance, the big issue here is his daughter, Lara and her personal problem. And we start to see something totally different here that you might even not assume about Nigeria as an outsider, my kind of perspective, mm-hmm. you know. But but um, he actually is a very, very good father. He doesn't think so, which I think right. is a good... He's a vulner- he yeah, he has his... He, he's kind of... He ha- does have his vulnerabilities, or he feels... Yeah, and that's what I really... I really, really like that about him, uh, because he doesn't think he's a good father you know, uh, but he wants to be a good father, which is much much more important than actually being a good father. Wanting to be a good father is an inner desire that he has. The fact that he's a good father should be feedback. Right. (laughs) From from his children, (laughs) um, either from his children or from his, um, uh, uh, from people that are watching him or from you watching him. So, So, yeah, he doesn't. He wants to be a good father. Uh, he is a good father from the feedback that we get from his children and from his wife and from the people that are watching him. But what I, I, I and I hear you. What I really wanted to do was always to, and I think I did that also in um, in uh, Light Seekers was to juxtapose his personal journey, either as a father or a son <laughs> or a friend, um, right. with the issue. A play, and that maybe yes, that's right. from my, yeah, my television background because we work with themes: story A, story B, story D, story C, and then what is the theme that runs, and then it has to tie together in that particular mm-hmm. episode. And I think I apply that a lot. 
and it works for me uh, because every book, and I hope it doesn't stop, every book is almost cathartic for me as a family because to a large extent, there's a huge part of me in Philip. The kinds of questions he asked are the kinds of questions I grapple with. Right. And so when I put him in that situation or in those kind of situations, it's usually because maybe I'm also going through those kind of those kind of challenges you know, myself. You know, I'm also um, so I also want answers. You know, in the case of Gaslight, for instance, I truly, truly was going through um, some kind of questions about faith and about my journey. Right. Yes. You know, and what 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 is what is keeping me away from organized religion and what is drawing me towards mm. organized religion, you know, and to then put Philip in that situation and in that context, you know, was very cathartic for me because by the time I got to the end, I also had my own answers, <laughs> you know, right. where, where I was. So as a father, I also felt that it was important to give, um, it was a way of also giving the victim agency, Yes. You know, because I couldn't bring the victim into the story the way I would have liked to as whole and complete. I also wanted to now symbolize, you know, symbolize that female journey in this particular case, the female, uh, the, the, yeah. the pastor's wife, and say, what would have happened if things, if she was raised differently? What would have happened if the father had said what Philip said at the right yes. time, daughter. Right. What kind of changes would have happened? So I think, I think it's an integral part of my storytelling for the light series. I call them the light series in my head. Mm. Where and, and light in this case being knowledge. Yes. It's really yes. all about knowledge. Yeah. You know, you know, just put the torchlight on an issue, illuminate it, and you know, the the truths that come out, the truths that evolve out of it, is light. You know, mm. and we walk in that light, you know, through the, through the, to the end. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I actually think that it's a, is a, is a formula or a, a theme that will always run through all of the story. And in this particular one, I think the hero for me was very much the wife, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, the wife actually, um, and then I think that it, it my heart goes out to 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 single parents because you do need that balance. You do need, you know, two strong, committed caregivers to, to you know, so that you can balance off each other. One can be tough, one can be soft, one can be, you know, you can balance yeah. off each other. And one so will see certain issues in their children and, and the other one misses and, and you can balance that out, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean single parents that are raising healthy complete I know mean, kudos I mean I I I doff my heart because they mm. constantly have to remove one heart for the other you know juggle these emotions you know especially when they are raising and it doesn't matter whether um it's male or female teenagers oh wow yeah it's hard work <laughs> it's hard work it's hard work for two people so you can imagine how much work it is for a single parent yeah, exactly. you know so yeah that that's basically it you know I, I i do agree with you that um his personal life the intertwining of his personal life and the the crime that he's investigating for me it adds a poignancy to the stories you know um I remember, and I need to tell you this, I need to say this. Uh, so I remember when I finished the, the first draft and I gave it to my wife to read. 
and she read. So I sat downstairs in the in the dining table on the dining table, and I was working. And she was in the room, and I don't want. I didn't want to go in and be saying, "Do you like it? Do you like it? Is it going? Right. Is it yes. going?" Okay. So I stayed away for a very very long time. <laughs> so she read through the night till the morning, and then I think she just I just saw her coming out from the bedroom, and she was sobbing. She's like crying. It's like, I was like, what happened? What happened? What happened? <laughs> For me, that is exactly how I want yes. people to react. But you can't react to that when somebody solves a crime. Mm. You know what I mean? You, you, you almost want to just give a high five. I said, oh, that's a very good story. They got the bad guy at the end of the day. But when you intertwine it with that personal story, then you go to the heart of the reader and the reader, the heart, the reader is able to think- go... This is more than the crime. Yeah, go on. Yeah, no, well, there are two things. One one was what happened to Sade through her life is something that I think I, I found emotionally challenging. You know, it's a very hard. The other one is his daughter and the story of Lara. That's such a heartbreaking thing that this child comes from America and is and you think that that should take her away from that problem of racism. And, of course, it doesn't. It just becomes a different kind of racism. Yeah. And that, that's heartbreaking. It is, it is. And it happens. And I think that's also another issue is that people, a lot of the people that have read the early uh, early drafts, especially black women, will mm-hmm. tell me, this is so true. Mm. This is so real, you know, um, and it's, it, it talks at them. And, and a lot of them also gave me feedback in terms of the solutions to it, you know, the, right the way the mother insisted that this was going to be solved, you know, <laughs> you know, it's saying, because there's so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of trauma and conflict in that space. Mm-hmm. that parents are not necessarily handling uh, the right way because they're doing the best that they can, but they're so emotionally invested that they're actually not sort of like standing back and saying, okay, yeah. what's the best way to yeah. approach this matter that's, works for all you know the bully and the bullied you know and most parents when you go to them and you say no but why can't we come up with a solution as a community of parents for this matter they was like no i only care about my child somebody's bullying yes, my child of I care about but of course bully. that's not the solution to the problem it's not in the general. solution the bully is also your child mm, yeah <laughs> you know it's just your child is just being taken care of by another parent, you know, another caregiver. You know, the, the bully and the bullied are all our children. And we need to do everything that we can to ensure that the after effects or the trauma of being bullied, does they don't carry it into adulthood. And mm-hmm. actually the same thing, the wounds and the scars from being the bully, the fear and the insecurity that led you to be a bully. We need to find ways to eradicate it because if you carry that into adulthood, you're going to have nasty yeah. bosses. You're going to have no. Um, it is. It's it's both sides can mess up society, and it will happen unless we solve both sides of the problem. Yeah, it's very absolutely. true. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things you don't do in the book is um, explain backgrounds. You you let the story tell itself, and I think actually, I I would be surprised if somebody didn't get a sense of Nigeria out of it. But I want to look at those couple of issues that are in the background. Well, not couple, there's plenty of issues in the background. Both the personal issues, which is the background stories that people bring, you know, why they do what they do. and so on. But then there's this big picture and it weighs on every character. 
And it goes to what we said about the emotional legacy, the trauma, maybe even the PSD of PTSD of colonialism. Let's start with that. And you've also got the civil war. You know, these are issues that, that divide and lead to so much um, the way society is. Is it difficult kind of, uh, how do you get that into the novel, I suppose, in a sense? You, you don't want to explain it to people, but it's, it's the existence. It's the reality that people live within. Because I have a brilliant editor, I, I, I promise you, I, I can't <laughs> tell you enough about how much I admire my editors. Um, because I'm very, also very privileged. I have two editors on both sides of the Atlantic, you know. Um, so I get perspectives coming at me, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. And the reason why I've also quickly pointed that out is that I used to want to write almost like chunks of essays to rationalize right. why this character is doing this kind mm -hmm. of thing. And my editor would say, give us in drip, Sandra. Just drip, drip it in, drip it in, drip in it. Because there is no character that sits down and goes, I am going to, I'm going to jump off this building now because I am suffering from the trauma of the civil war, because you know what happened during the civil war, but you know, and then you go, you know, characters just jump, you know, yeah. <laughs> they just jump, you know. Um, so I, I, I learned that it's very, very important to drip. Another one that I, I learned uh, that I, and I tried to do was a conversation I was having with a, a writer called Unyeko Braithwaite, who wrote My Sister the Serial Killer. And yes, I was like, right. your book, yeah, your book is so brief. It's so short and it's very, very, mm. you don't give long descriptions and all that. I said, yes, but it doesn't make any sense to give all these long descriptions because in reality, when we enter a room, we take in the most important thing. Yeah, right. You know, we, we don't take in everything. We don't say, oh, the room is uh, this and then the, the fan is rolling, the heat is whatever. You take in the most important information that has bearing on the scene, mm. that has bearing on the purpose of the character in that room. So if the character enters a restaurant and is going to meet a date, of course, his eyes will be focused on where he's going to, and he will only he will only talk about the path around the tables, around the bar that leads to the date that's waiting for him. You know, it's it will be absolutely ridiculous for us to now describe what is happening. You know, in the toilet on the way to the toilet when right. he's going away from the toilet. So when you talk about how I bring all the characters, or sorry, all the issues in into that, I only actually just bring in what has bearing on that scene or that moment or what the character is saying. Um, but I am I, very conscious about bringing it in. Uh, and it's very interesting that you said that too, because I do get feedback from uh, some Western readers. I, I go to Goodreads a lot. I shouldn't, I know. But <laughs> yeah, maybe not. And they would say, yeah, they would say, oh, they didn't get enough atmosphere of Nigeria. I'm like, wow, you cannot set, there's no way you can set, there's no way gaslight would happen in New York. You know, there's no way gaslight would happen in in Iceland. You know, the, the conditions are different. The, the yeah. institutions are different, you know. And so the very fact that what happened in Gaslight happened is because it's a Nigerian story and it's a Nigerian context, you know. So that makes it easy. The authenticity of the characters being Nigeria 
in Nigeria yes, I see. is what makes it easy for you to put all those information. Hopefully, like my editor says, in drips. <laughs> yeah. Rather than in blocks. <laughs> but it still comes across. I can't believe anybody would say the book doesn't feel Nigerian or it's not a joint Nigerian enough. I mean, the context seems to me to be everywhere. And it makes you think about things. It makes you think, for instance, even though it's a background issue, about colonialism in a different context. Mm. Because we have a very, we, we, first of all, we have this stupid British benevolent view of our own history that means that when we look on things like colonialism, we can give it some kind of pat on the back instead of actually realizing just how evil and horrible the whole thing was. We saved the natives from themselves. Yeah, exactly, all that stuff. One of the things I kind of realized, though, was there's a real danger here that, that it's not just about colonialism politically, it's about religious colonialism as well. And one of the things about that is that when you take a religious colonialism to a people who are very spiritual, mm. they tend to adopt it in a way that becomes very, very strong. And it's mm -hmm. almost like um, Nigerians are more Christian than Western Christians. Who are now, and, you know, and issues like homosexuality come out of that and a certain misogyny, too, that still exists. And now Nigeria has to learn to deal with that in its own context. Mm -hmm. But it, it makes life uh, it made me realize things, I suppose, in a different way. So I, I can't see how somebody could say it's not there. Yeah, I, I, well, I think people sometimes look. I get, I get it a lot. I've, been, I've, I've lived in parts of the world where people have said things like, um, "You speak English so well," <laughs> you know. Um, uh, and then I started learning how to answer back, and I would say, "So do you." <laughs> You know, kind of things. So I think sometimes people are people approach crime fiction from the con from Af the African continent with a certain expectation of sometimes the crudeness of the language, mm. the kind of crime that we should be writing should be a bit more um, a bit more like village crime, right. you know? yeah, yeah, and, and all of that. Um, uh, the people approach our work from um, Alexander McCall Smith's work, you know, from right. that sense, in a sense, you know, um, which is good work, it's valid, but they don't sort of see it as a genre, but rather they want to see everything. If you're not describing the goods and the, and the, it it's comes, it's, it, first of all, yeah. it's fascinates a number of people that we write English so well, <laughs> right? <laughs> Number two is that it fascinates them that people actually ride in cars. Um, the people it, it fascinates them that people actually live in an air-conditioned apartment, you know, right. because those, those don't necessarily fit into the stereotype that they see on CNN, you know. Yeah. Um, I, especially when you're saying that these are ordinary people, you're not talking about the the corrupt politician who is driving a Mercedes-Benz, you know, mm. you see more Mercedes-Benz or more 4x4 or Maseratis on the streets of Lagos than you would see, you know, <laughs> you know, in, in yeah. Berlin, you know. So it's, a, it's, I think, so when people say it's not Nigerian enough, I think it's because it's not meeting their expectation mm. of what they think Nigeria should be based on popular media. It is a bit depressing to know that Westerners still hold those kind of stupid stereotypes, though. So again, we're back to the same thing, really. The fiction can help people to understand better the experience, the reality of Nigeria, rather than that kind of picture. 
I mean, one yeah. of the things you mentioned is the traffic. <laughs> traffic is a big problem in Lagos anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. Traffic is a big problem. And people, you know, I don't know whether you know, but I, so I live in Namibia. Yes, right. Uh, yeah, Namibia is um, 2.5, 2.7 million people in a country mm. the size of roughly the size of Texas, mm. right? Um, so it's one of the it's the second most sparsely populated country in the world. Right. I think about Mo- Mo- Mongolia. I think I'm not quite sure. Please don't quote me. But the reality but of the, the picture, yeah. People, yeah, people would ask me, "What What are you doing in Namibia?" You know. And my answer would always be, have you ever been to Lagos? And they would say, yes. Or they would say no. And I would say, then you would never understand why I live in Namibia. <laughs> you know, um, Between my house and my office in Namibia is exactly 6.5 minutes. Right. You know? And if it goes further than 6.5 minutes, there's a problem. You know, right. most likely traffic lights stopped or it's raining and you know there's some kind of short circuits in the in the traffic light. But in Lagos, where I was living before I moved to Namibia, was about seven, ten minutes from my office. And on an average, it would take me 90 minutes to get to the office sometime yeah. because of traffic, uh, because the roadblocks. And so, I, in fact, I st- there was a time I stopped even driving to the office. Mm. I was just bike because we're just faster, you know, <laughs> faster at the end of the day, you know. So, yeah, the, the, the traffic is a very big part of it. And I always try to explain to people the extent to which the traffic in Nigeria, how it would impact on solving a crime. Mm. I can't do a yeah. car chase. <laughs> You know, I tend to a car chase. Um, you know, so for instance, people would say, you know, but the stone is not fast enough, you know, things like that. Like, you can't go faster than Lagos fast. <laughs> you know, there's just so much you can you can solve you can solve on the cell phone. Yeah, you can imagine there's there's the cops in one car and there's the crooks in another car, and they're about six cars apart, and they just can't <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the traffic is huge, you know. I mean, I, I know I know times when, um, even when I was working in Lagos, uh, where we literally spend the night on the road, you know, between the mainland and the island, for instance, you know, the third mainland bridge. And a lot of people have horror stories like this, you yeah. know, uh, whereby they spend the night on the road, you know. I think things are getting a bit better now, but... It's not the the road networks are bad. Sometimes it's just the fact that the road is bad itself. The sheer number of cars on the road, um, and you're talking about, say, for instance, in Lagos, you're talking about a, a city that's like 13 million people. Yeah, yeah, massive. Yes, yeah, in a small, in a small size, space. Mm. <laughs> you know, a small small size. So it's inevitable, you know, mm. really, at the end of the day, to have situations like that. Yeah. One last, I mean, serious issue around the novel, which is it's about identity. Um, and it's really interesting because Philip comes from a way he's gone to America, so he gets to come back from America. And then there are issues for him, but there are also issues for the children, of course, because they have a totally different identity. And these aren't things, you can't just be Nigerian or be American. You know, you are whatever gets into your head in a sense. And it's all about sort of different things. And it's a really interesting interplay. Now, it's obvious. One of the things it gives you the chance to do is have that little outsider perspective on Nigeria, 
But it's rather more complicated than that too, isn't it? Very. Um, I, w- I was just coming from the mall. I'm in Accra now, and I'm just coming from the mall. Um, and then I saw this big billboard, and it's just this beautifully done ad for a perfume. And they said something like, um, where you're from is who you are. Right. You know, and it, the name of the perfume is, I think, Sense of Africa or Sense right. of Africa. Right. Something like that. And I, I just, I was so angry. I kept on mm. talking about this. But where I'm from is not who I am. Where I'm going to, I'm much more than where I'm from, mm. you know. Um, and just as I'm much more than uh, where I'm going to, you know, this, this, this reductionist approach to analyzing characters and analyzing identity, you know, as much as one is moving away from the binary description of black and white sex, mm-hmm and all of those kind of things. I still don't think that the world or humanity is embracing enough in practice the idea that humans are complex. And right. uh, uh, yeah, uh, and and when we're talking about identity, it's not, it's not as simple as who you are, who you sleep with, what you eat, you know, things like that. It's so many things that make up you. And the you of today is not necessarily the you of tomorrow, you know, <laughs> and all that. And so I, I think in the book, I really wanted to explore that in terms of identity. You know, where, where do you call home? And what does yes. home mean? You know, what does home mean for you? You know, it's home where your friends are or is it home where you're born yeah, and all of that. And what makes it so... I hope that came across, but what makes it so easy for Nigerians to be one of the most traveled or mm. migrating groups of black people on the continent? Why, 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 why do we, why do we move from Nigeria so easily, mm-hmm. thrive so easily outside of Nigeria, yeah, you know, yeah. and yet still remain connected to this country that we yes you know, uh, almost like run away from, you know, those are the things that I really wanted to explore and ask questions. So I even had focus group um, readers that I would ask. Yeah, I would ask them questions like, no, what is it about our country, you know, that that pulls us, keeps pulling at us, keeps pulling at us. You know, you go to the airport and Nigerians are traveling abroad and just open any suitcase, you know, all the food stuff is there, you know, <laughs> ISIS, you know, you know, people meet. And in fact, when I finish this meeting with you now, I'm actually going to go to the markets to go and buy food stuff to take, <laughs> right, you know, right. and then you're like, so why did you leave if you like it so much, you know, kind of thing. Um, it's, it's the same thing, you know, you, you, you go to, you travel abroad and you see two Nigerians, together and all they're talking about is Nigeria. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, you don't you don't see two Nigerians like real Nigerians, you know, born in Nigeria that moved away. And they're talking about Biden. No, it's American <laughs> talking about home, you know. I went yesterday. Ah oh, no 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 when else did you go again? Oh uh, that country. Oh God will help us in that country or oh, you know things like that. They're constantly thinking mm. and re- relieving their experiences at home. And yet they are not at home, <laughs> at home, you know. And so that fascinates me a lot because I feel like that a lot of times, yeah. you know. Um, and I, I feel... did wonder, because again, you are exploring your own journey here, aren't you? Your own trying to understand where you fit in all this. Absolutely. And and, and I'm luckier than most, to be honest, because I still have my parents there. I have a lot, you know, uh, yeah. um, 
I, I can't actually say I've emigrated in a sense. I go home frequently. I do a lot of work at home with um, with drama groups and, and you know uh, production uh, teams. But I sometimes wonder, you know, maybe my my children's connection to home, mm. Nigeria, for instance. You know, my children's connection uh, to their heritage, and you know, do, would they call Nigeria home? And the fact that they don't live there does that mean they are any less Nigerian? Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, See, I think this is something you definitely get a sense of in the book, in the novel, definitely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, the answer is still out there. I, I enjoy, I really, really enjoy the the concept of being a global citizen mm. with roots planted somewhere. You know, um, my wife and I call our home in Namibia the headquarters. Ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's not It's not home home. It's the headquarters. Yeah, it's where know? we are now. It's, it's yeah, the it's, base, yeah. central base. Yeah. Yes, it's the central base. And then the kids are hovering around. One is in the United States. One is in mm-hmm. uh, South Africa. You know, our parents come for Christmas. So there's this sense that it's, um, it's, a, it's a head office and things hover around. But it's not really home home is what you carry around in your heart and where you're much more mm. comfortable and when you you know it's yeah so there was a time when home was uh, on any good airport that i can you know <laughs> <laughs> that i'm comfortable in i know i won't miss my flight and i just like move because I, that's home because i'm at, i feel at home in that place because it's familiar but it yes, doesn't right. mean that that is my identity no of course not. home does not make me who i am you know yeah all right then one last question you've been very generous with your time i said an hour we've already gone an hour and a half so i'm i'm, I'm the talkative you you should not you should not have given us a time limit you should have just said let's spend the whole day <laughs> well we could do i've had to jump some questions here but no seriously um philip I can't, um we've got another novel coming i take it i mean can we expect more after that oh yes 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 um I'm, I'm so blessed because i've just gotten my contract renewed Right. Um, um, I think I sh- I can share it. I think so. I'm not quite Good. sure. Yet. Yeah, but so I've got my contract renewed for another two books from the Philip Tyrell series. Um, so I'm working on the third one now. Um, it's uh, it's based on Philip is investigating a, a a plane crash. Right. Okay. Um, uh, in the Nigerian skies, and I'm very excited and very challenged about it because I think it's something. It's again another systemic issue. In, mm, in, right. In, you know, our airports, um, the level of safety, um, the the political interventions within the aviation industry, especially in African countries. Right. It's more expensive to fly from Lagos to, I would say, even Accra, or to fly from Lagos to even, say, Kenya, mm-hmm. than to travel to London. Yeah, right. You know, um, which doesn't why? make any sense. Yeah, yeah. it's it's it, but the airport taxes are high. Uh, the maintenance issues are high. The 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 airlines pay such a huge amount of money for insurance, for instance, that it has it has to be a, a systemic thing that needs to be dealt with because it's not right. the airline's fault. <laughs> you know, they have to. They have to make a living, but if the airline is not safe, if the airport is not safe to land in, then they have to make 
other arrangements and they have mm. to pay for those arrangements to keep their passengers safe, for instance, you know. So those are some of the things that I want to look at. Right. You know, how did we get here? You know, how did we spend so much money building? And it's the same thing in many African countries, building this huge airports, international airports that, you know, are either not maintained or when they're maintained, they're poorly maintained or um, why? And why is it that it's only Ethiopian airlines in the whole of Africa that is that it has a thriving, you know, um, mm. airline industry or aviation industry as against for even our very well-developed um, South Africa, for instance, has had an embattled South African airways for years, you know, so I became very fascinated about asking these questions. And I only want to write stories that I'm seeking answers to questions, not ones that I already have answers to. Yeah, so sure. That, that fascinates me. You know, it's kind of funny. I see this in a Welsh context too, because you have the idea of, um, well, we need more computer jobs, let's say. There's no point in saying we need computer jobs. What you have to understand is what computer jobs do we need? Why do we need these jobs? What are we going to create that's Welsh about this that we can add to the economy so we're not just stealing ideas from America and London? And Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the idea that a lot of African countries hold on to ideals that I think are informed by colonial mentality. Right. You know, um, and we don't pay attention to the more important things. You know, um, we don't have national carriers, for instance. Most of Nigeria doesn't have a national carrier mm. right now, which is sad because mm. how do you bring tourists in? You know, <laughs> you know, how do you, you know, if, if you're not controlling the value chain. Yeah, I see what you mean. Of, of your economy, you know, in, in, mm. a, in a very systemic manner. You know, um, when you think about how Qatar you know, managed Qatar Airways during the, uh, for the, for the World Cup, you know, mm. they, they tripled their, 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 their fleets. They tripled their, their, the destinations they were going through to convince people that don't worry, it's not going to be that tough to come to Qatar, mm. you know, and as soon as the World Cup is over, they're starting trimming down the destinations yeah. again, you know, because they've achieved their aim. The, the, so I think what I'm saying is that when, we start learning to do things intentionally, understanding the consequences of success, right. consequences of failure, and we can manage those two consequences. Then we start to see a change in our in, in our communities, in our societies, especially in the African society. Right now, we don't understand why we do certain things. We just need an airport because we like the idea of planes landing. What you mean? You know. Yeah, but if you actually say, okay, we need an airport because this we would want happen. to develop tourism. Yeah, exactly. We want to develop, yeah. we want to develop the tourism industry, or we're putting an airport this close to this huge hospital because mm. we want people to come. Um, we want to be able to evacuate people quickly or take people for medical supplies quickly. At least give me a reason beyond mm. we want an airport, or it's nice to have an airport. You know, and then when you are able to know why the purpose for which you have an airport in that place, then it allows you to make the changes required. Because from that point on, it's all about managing the consequences of success and failure. Yeah, so you right. have to tweak it because you know you are tweaking according to purpose. So you say purpose fit, mm. tweaking, change, 
an um, evolution that happens there. Not one because you're not painting the airport because you feel like painting it. You're painting it because you said, okay, tourists are going to come through here. We built it because we wanted tourists to come through here. And so they need to go through beautiful stuff, you know. Then you can say, okay, let's put a nice sculpture here. Let's get exhibitions to happen at the arrival hall. They, people yeah, will it, it becomes reason. It becomes yeah. a different process. Mm. Yes, yes. And that makes a lot of sense. That sounds fascinating. I, personally, you know, I will be looking forward to the next one anyway. One last question then. How about a recommendation, something you think readers, and I don't mind if it's a film or a book or whatever, but um, something you think um, our listeners might be interested in. Okay. Uh, wow. The last book I just read, um, the last book I read that I really, really enjoyed was Lessons in Chemistry. Right. I really, really enjoyed that book. I thought it was maybe because it was also not my genre. Mm-hmm. You know, I really enjoyed I enjoyed reading it. And I think anyone that just likes the kinds of books that um, John Ivan used to write in those days, you know, right. The house rules, you know, um, a prayer for Owen Meany kind of thing. Uh, I really, really like it. It's a bit of a fantasy kind of thing because you really mm. have, but I really love that book. But it's escapism, love, you can get into it. Yes, I love it. Um, the, the series that I just finished watching now that overwhelmed me because I felt it was just absolutely brilliant, uh, was um, The Fall of the House of Usher, right? On Netflix. It's so beautifully done. Some of the best dialogue I have ever, ever heard ah, okay. or, or, um, or on the screen. Um, really, really fantastical too, because it was based on the stories of... Um, Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, so I really found it fascinating. I loved it. The, everything about it, the writing especially, really, really got me. It's, it's the perfect mix of technical excellence and creative in, uh, ingenious storytelling. Right. I look yeah. forward to that then because I haven't seen that yet. So that's a good one to, to look out for. Femi, yeah. that's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. What an absolute pleasure to chat to Femi Coyote about Gaslight. Gaslight is available from all good book outlets. But if you want to order it from us, you can get it by clicking the link on the program notes and that'll take you to bookshop.org and you can get it there. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and subscribe with your favourite podcast provider. I'll be back with another interview very shortly, but for now, bye and thank you very much for listening.